You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Justice is Served. This is the show where we give you all of the latest legal news. I'm your host, Mari Fagel, joined by my lovely co-host, criminal defense attorney, Sarah Zari. Thank you. Administrative attorney, Chelsea Galicia. Hello, Hello. ladies. Hi. Hello. I am um, very much looking forward to doing this show with all three of us on the panel. Because we've been missing each other the last couple weeks. It's a big day for us. It's a big day. As uh, Phil said, the powerhouse, three women are in the house. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, I'm just going to jump right into it. We're going to start with case of the week. Sarah was interesting. You emailed me this story earlier in the week, which Mm -hmm. I think... The L.A. Times has been doing a really good job with coverage of this story. Usually for Case of the Week, we try to do a more national story that's been getting a lot of attention. This particular story is a very local story to Los Angeles, but I found it so fascinating. I thought it would make a great segment for the three of us to discuss. Uh, Governor Jerry Brown rejected the parole for someone who has been a member of the Mexican Mafia. His name is Rene Enriquez. Uh, They call him Boxer. He has been serving prison time for two murders committed in 1989. First, he ordered the killing of a young mother. Then, he personally killed a fellow Mexican Mafia member. But... The story is, uh, this is Rene Enriquez right here. He he turned his life around. In 2002, he left the prison gang, which I want to talk with you, especially, Sarah, Mm -hmm. with your criminal defense background, about what the Mexican Mafia is. Because Mm -hmm. for a lot of people who, even if you live in Los Angeles, but especially outside of Los Angeles, outside of California, you don't necessarily know what the Mexican Mafia is and what the Mm -hmm. idea of a prison gang is. Uh, so he was part of the Mexican Mafia. In 2002, he changed his life around. He decided to instead turn on the former people who were his colleagues in this prison gang, and mm-hmm. he's tried to turn a new leaf in his life. Uh, he has become an expert witness where he will go into trials. He will testify against defendants who are members of the Mexican Mafia, and he will explain to the jury what the Mexican Mafia is. And one reason why it's so important to have um, these former members turn a new leaf is they will tell the people in the prison who in the prison is a part of the Mexican Mafia and they Uh get validated. I'm sure you'll talk about this. Uh, So it's important to have these people you know, be a law enforcement source. They do have an expertise to share Mm -hmm. and to give and he has turned his life around. That's why I want to get both of your opinions on this. Should he have had, should he be granted parole? Mm-hmm. This is someone who, yes, two murders, mm-hmm. two people a are dead a week apart. because mm-hmm. of him. So that's one thing. But he's turned his life around. Mm-hmm. And for the last 12 years, he has been helping 
law enforcement, and he's been trying to do good. Mm-hmm. So should he have well, been granted parole or I not? Think, you know what, um, uh, Mari, I actually read Jerry Brown's decision. It's like a three-page decision, and it makes absolute sense because you look at the violent crimes. I mean, the Mexican mafia is not the you know the, the East Side goofballs, okay? The Mexican mafia <laughs> is the most serious criminal organization whose empire starts in the prison system and expands to the streets. And so if something happens in East L.A. right now, within minutes, the brothers in Pelican Bay know about it, and probably tomorrow morning there's an order out as to how to resolve the issue. So it's a, it's a very violent gang, and, and this guy was not just a member. He was a leader, he was an organizer, he was up there for two decades at least, and he ex, you know he ordered the execution of you know the two, two murders that you were talking about are a week apart. He then stabbed another Mex- Mexican mafia member while he's in Men's Central Jail. 28 times the guy survived, but nonetheless. Um, so so this is a serious, serious gang, and he was not just a member. He was up there in the ranks. He earned his stripes because, you know, in, in this type of a gang, you earn your stripes by going to prison and by uh, by taking the case, basically. So the, the leaders are in prison, and the rest of the guys are doing what they need to do to get to prison. It, it's a big deal to get to prison. And so... Um, so I think, you know, Jerry Brown did a very um, detailed analysis in this three-page decision and said, look, yes, you know, he helped prosecutors, FBI, DA's offices, uh, what LAPD, whatnot, but when you look at the violent crimes he committed and you look at the 28 very serious disciplinary incidents that he's written up for while he's in custody, it, he's not safe. He's not safe to release into the community. And what I found interesting was he used um, his own safety as a basis for blocking his parole. He yep. said, you know, this guy is a registered sex offender. He's on the sex offender website. Um, his address is listed. And this puts himself, his family, his his parole officers in the community, the community. Yeah. Um, in danger. So you know what? <laughs> he's safe where he is. Yeah. And you know, as liberal as I am, um, I just think that um, there are far safer people that deserve to parole um, than, than you know, um, Enriquez, you know, from La M, which is how the Mexican mafia is referred to. Um, you know, I think I think that this you're talking about the daddy of all prison gangs, yeah. and it's very serious. And I, you know, I, I agree with his uh, decision. I think- Chelsea, I just want to ask you about uh, one particular point in the article that I found disturbing was the fact that this person was about to be released from prison and the family members of the victim who he killed didn't didn't even know about it until the LA Times decided to do a story which by the way the LA Times only even did a story because the law enforcement used taxpayer dollars to have this guy go to speak to a group of business leaders in downtown LA and as you said because this guy is such a security threat taxpayer dollars went towards protecting it and then the LA Times decided to do a story and the business leaders organization reimbursed him once the LA Times did a story the poor children of this victim who was killed uh, Cynthia Galvedon read it and they were like oh the the killer of our mother is about to be released and we didn't Mm -hmm. even know about it and what do you think about that? Well absolutely the the victim's family should have some say whether they have been apologized to uh, whether they feel their own safety is compromised by the release of this guy so they didn't even know when they did find out they made an effort to go and uh, share their thoughts which were 
to please don't let this guy out. We are afraid for ourselves still. So uh, I think it's a very important point that the victim's families be acknowledged as part of this equation. And they almost weren't if for not their own uh, efforts to hear or have them their their side be heard. Yeah, but, but you know what? Also, this is... Um to me, this is the issue. This is the responsibility of the Department of Corrections, which, by the way, has given birth to the largest uh, prison gangs in the country: Mexican Mafia, Nuestra Familia, um, uh, the Aryan Brotherhood, the white supremacists. They they are all born in our prison system. I mean, this is not this is not a perk for us Native Californians, but it this is you know this is the CDC and it's it's complete bureaucracy, it's complete dysfunction. I'm not surprised that the victim's family was not informed. As they should have been. Well, I, I just found it unfortunate because if it weren't for this fluke that um, the biggest newspaper in the city happened to write about this man, this family would have never even been apprised mm-hmm. of the situation. Yeah. But uh, one thing you touched on, Sarah, that ended up for me being the deciding factor when I think about, okay, this guy is a murderer, mm-hmm. but he's turned his life around. Should he be released to the streets? The one decision um, that I think Governor Brown was right on was... This is a huge security threat mm-hmm. to himself and to his family. He mm-hmm. may be better off sitting in prison because I don't if people don't understand about the inner workings of the Mexican mafia, mm-hmm. they don't understand like you said how powerful they are. Even though they're in prison, they are calling the shots of what happens on the streets of Los Angeles every single day. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie uh, American Me with Edward James Olmos. Mm -hmm. Anyone who wants to learn more about the Mexican mafia needs to watch Mm -hmm. this movie. Edward James Olmos is one of the few people in Los Angeles County who is allowed to have a concealed carry permit in Mm -hmm. the county because of the Mexican Mafia, because Mm -hmm. he is the star of a movie that talks about the history Mm -hmm. of the Mexican Mafia. There has been a green light out on him ever since this movie was made in the 90s. Literally, his safety is compromised every single day because of a movie that's almost two decades old now. Mm -hmm. That's how serious a threat the Mexican Mafia is. And like you said, he's on a list. His address is out there. And so he is, a, you know, it's a threat to himself, to his family, to his parole agents. Well, in his petition, he said he would go in witness protection so that his identity wouldn't be known. But then, and he wouldn't be on the sex offender list. So I don't know how that would be fair. And you think they can't find him? <laughs> well, no, there, he, he doesn't have, he doesn't get to pick whether he's on a sex offender list. If you're convicted of a sex offense, you get on that list. And, and this and happened you know, when he was a teenager. He was involved in a gang rape. Right, but that doesn't matter. I mean, I, 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 I had it, it, the sex registration statutes are the it's penal code two ninety. It's so it's so harsh. It's so unfair because there are rapists, there are people like him, and then there's the the, the guy who's nineteen and tapped the butt of some fifteen year old, and he's on there too. And it's really, I mean, that is so that law is so in need of change. I'm sorry to you know change course here but i but i think that he can't get around that so his address is out and i, mm-hmm. I also think that um, one thing that was interesting about Jerry Brown's decision was um, that he found him to have a very shallow understanding um, or self-awareness of why he did this, these things. He said, oh, you know, I was just, I was taking drugs and I was um, under, uh, you know, I want, I, it was a survival thing. And I know that, you know, gang members join gangs to belong. I mean, that, that is a typical thing for a, a kid from the streets who, who joins a gang. But with him, it's, it's almost like he minimized these really violent, Violent crimes that he'd committed, which didn't help him with um, with Jerry Brown. You know, it's like it's like he's not even really 
you know, understanding. I, I was listening to an interview and he sounds incredibly intelligent mm-hmm. and articulate. And I'm sure if he would have been asked, mm-hmm. he would have probably given a very insightful reason as to why he was involved. I'm not sure why that wasn't part of mm-hmm. uh, the petition. Well, he said, I can't place. diagnose myself. I really can't answer that question. This is what he says to the parole board. And then, you know, he says, they say, well, in 2004 and 2005, you actually smuggled drugs into the prison. Why'd you do that? And he says, oh, well, you know, I was so depressed because the the, uh, the law enforcement was not using me that much back then. So, you know, this guy doesn't even have a relapse pre- uh, uh, prevention program in place. So we let him off on parole. And, you know, at some point, his snitch career is going to be over. Yeah. And, and and actually, um, I'm not going to name names, but a, a federal prosecutor wanted to use him as an expert. And the judge said, no, he's been out of this gang for, you know, a decade. He's no longer an expert. His expertise only is relevant for so long. Cool. So It's like a modeling career. You know? <laughs> yeah. So at some point, it's over. Before we scare the residents of L.A. too much, I do want to talk about an article that I saw that names the Mexican mafia as one of the reasons why crime has actually gone down in the last couple of decades is because they control so much of the street there's almost like no competition uh, and for a while they required no drive-bys and so it's not all bad news for LA residents so we need to thank the Mexican I don't know about <laughs> thanking but I just don't want to uh, leave everybody with an impression that they need to be super fearful you know walk right. I mean yes be cautious and vigilant like normal but I just didn't want to instill more fear than already but, but exists. on the flip side too um, there are you know there's an organization like homeboy industries with father Boyle who basically reforms these gang members gives them a job you know removes their tattoos for free which is an expensive process and teaches them how to become law-abiding citizens and not have to belong to a gang family and I and I admire I mean I work closely closely with that organization because I ran their legal clinic and um, that's 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 rehabilitation you know that's a different story but this guy just because he uh, you know was the darling of law enforcement and uh, snitched on his fellow colleagues yeah. should he and, be out on the streets I don't, now I don't, I don't really like perks. snitches but yes, so uh, it's not it doesn't sound like the worst prison experience for him he's got a lot of he, he gets to go out well because he's lecture. a law enforcement starling <laughs> right. but I do think you know it, I'm glad that we've been able to use this show to talk about the Mexican Mafia because it's something in Los Angeles that is, you know, I don't mean to scare tactic people, but it is, you know, a big part of crime in the community. Mm-hmm. And um, we will talk about the Mexican Mafia again on this show in the future, especially uh, one book that Renee Enriquez actually was a part of was called The Black Hand. It's written by Chris Blatchford, and it's about uh, the Mexican Mafia mm-hmm. uh, rising up and its history. So maybe we'll get Chris Blatchford on this show. Love to have Father Boyle on the show to talk about Homeboy Industries. So there's a lot more uh, to talk about on this show regarding gang involvement in Los Angeles because it's it's fascinating to us on a local level, but also on a national level. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And they're here to stay. And if they want, they'll reach out and touch you. (laughs) Mexican mafia. Anyway. All right. So on the docket. Yes. Okay. Um, first on the docket, we are going to update you on the Aaron Hernandez trial. There's lots been going on in the past week. Um, there's been the issue of the text messages, uh, probably the final text messages sent by, by Lloyd to his sister. Uh, there was a ruling by the judge, um, I, I believe last week, uh, where she told the prosecutors they cannot elicit any testimony about text messages sent by Lloyd. But the ruling changed on Monday, and the judge said, look, uh, I will let the text messages 
messages in, the fact that they were sent or how many were sent, but the content is inadmissible, and so is uh, Lloyd's sister's reaction to to these text messages. So this is a huge (laughs) loss for the prosecution because, uh, you know, I mean, what what was said, which was, uh, just so you know who I'm with, NFL. Okay. The reason the judge kept this out was because it is more prejudicial than probative. So I do believe it's a correct ruling. I'm wondering what you. What okay, you Chelsea and I are shaking our heads. Of <laughs> so, course you are. <laughs> okay, the reason why this ruling upsets me is because either go one way or the other. To the judge is basically trying to protect himself on appeal by saying, "Okay, I'll let the fact that he sent these texts come in, but not the content of the text or her reaction to these texts." That's such a bullshit move. Either don't let the text in at all, or if you're going to let it in, the jury's always going to be wondering, you know, the empty chair. They're going to be wondering what is in the content of those text messages. And the fact that those texts said, I'm with NFL, to me, Chelsea? (laughs) I I agree with you. I think that they, they should be let in entirely because this is the victim's own words. He's not here to speak for himself, obviously. So this is the closest thing that we have to it. I understand but Here's look, the thing. If, if he said Hernandez, Aaron, something that was more identifiable, he's scared for his life. He has time for three letters. NFL. Well, you know what? I, I just, from an evidentiary standpoint, I think this judge did the right thing because no. it is prejudicial. And it's fine. Okay. Then what bothers me? Okay, I think we have three different views here. Chelsea thinks go all the way. Yes. Let the jurors see the text. Let them see that the text said, "I'm with NFL," just and so hear the no. sister's reaction. No. You think that the judge made the right decision that the fact that the texts were sent should be come in but not the content not the reaction i think either one or the other i don't think i think it does more harm to let the fact that text messages were mm-hmm. sent be heard by the jury but not to fill in the dotted line of what right. those texts said so i'm fine with your decision that the mm-hmm. judge shouldn't let the text in but then don't let any reference to right. the text but, in at all because it, it, that's it happens, more harmful it happens often i think because a judge is trying to protect his own ass right uh, it's a she but yeah i mean she, she, she she's trying to be fair to both sides but from an evidentiary standpoint i think she's doing the right thing so the 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 next thing that came up is um a 0.45 caliber shell casing with the gum wrapped around it uh that was found in the rent car that aaron hernandez returned um called for dna test uh, dna uh, dna expert who testified about it and there's been an attack by the defense on the dna evidence here saying that this is a secondary transfer from of hernandez's dna from the gum to the shell casing and and again i have to say that I agree with um, Sultan uh, Hernandez's attorney because he's saying, "Look, you're you're the police department. You're trained in evidence gathering. Why do you go there and pick up these items from the trash and put it in your truck? Why don't you put it in an evidence bag? You know." And that's a good question. And it I is think a great this- question, but it doesn't mean he didn't do it. Okay. So um, you- <laughs> do you remember O.J. Simpson? <laughs> yes. And and this is this is an O.J. Simpson type of case. It's a cir- circumstantial case. So my where my the th- defense is only legs to stand on are pointing the fingers at the police department and their shoddy work. But guess what? It worked 
worked in OJ, so it could work here. It could work. It, work, it could work here. And not only that, but you know, in these circumstantial cases, every little bit, like Chelsea and I were talking about this last week, every little bit counts for the prosecution, and every little attack will ultimately count for the defense. So it's just about all these little pieces. That's why I think this was not a good week for the prosecutors. Next, mm-hmm. what happened? There was testimony by at least two housekeepers about guns in Hernandez's home, under his mattress, in his socks drawer, and in his pocket that you know. Uh, uh, dropped out of his khakis or whatever. So, you know, again, it's is it a point forty five? They don't know what kind of gun it was or what kind of guns they found. They just identify it as heavy, you know, 15 centimeters long, and, and that's not really probative. And then that they weren't there when they cleaned the house right after the murder. Right. Clearly and, things were moved around. Uh, but I mean, but I mean, the murder weapon is not there. I don't care how many guns are found. There's a point twenty two at the crime scene. There's all these guns at the house. Where is the murder weapon? That's that's the key. You know, that's the key evidence. I, but I don't think that that's required. I think he can still be convicted without of, of it. Of course, if everything else falls into place, right? Right. Yeah, but I, that's why I think it's interesting that the judge let in the fact that the let in you know let these two housekeepers testify to the fact that they had seen guns in this home but isn't letting in the content of those text messages these rulings seem to be because to me it's almost more harmful for a jury to hear oh this guy had guns in his home you know a lot of times juries they get a lot of information a lot of um legal you know law thrown at them at the end jury instructions and they go with their gut feeling they go with their sense is this a bad guy yeah mm-hmm. he did it mm-hmm. you know we we haven't been back in the jury room so we don't know but a lot of times they go with their gut so when they hear something like oh these two housekeepers testified that he had guns all over the place in his home that's almost more harmful than a text that reads i'm with nfl which yeah you, you don't know necessarily what that means so to me the rulings you know will will obviously be an issue on appeal they're not consistent they'll obviously be an issue on appeal and and lastly um where are his shoes so this this to me is really interesting because there is this one footprint near lloyd's body and it's supposedly a nike air jordan uh shoe that they know that hernandez had bought prior to the prior to lloyd's murder and and when they went in with a search warrant and and looked at the and searched the home they actually took a photograph of three pairs of shoes uh, sneakers and they believe that they belong to Wallace Ortiz and Hernandez the three co-defendants they took a photograph so that clearly they knew that this was relevant evidence but they failed to seize it even though the search warrant allowed them to take the shoes to me that's mind-boggling so now where are the shoes there's also jail call from Hernandez to his fiance saying hey are my clothes and shit still at the house and you know she's like why are you asking about your clothes so it's it's really suspect because the shoes are gone the second search they couldn't find these shoes and I think in a case, again, circumstantial yeah. like this, having a shoe that fits the shoe print, it, it, this came up in OJ as well. Uh, are you going to coin a term instead of the glove? We're going to talk about the shoe. You should, you should if call. If the shoe don't fit. You oh, must have quit. Oh, no. there, you just gave Hernandez's defense his last line to the jury. <laughs> no, and also, can we talk about the housekeeper that saw uh, the fiancé carrying out the big, bulky thing that seemed to be too heavy, which they assume was ammunition guns, whatever else, and uh, that they said she looked very anxious, was crying back and forth, not like a grieving type of upset, but like a nervous P- 
peeking out the window looking to see uh, if, if people were coming. So mm-hmm. I think that that is pretty uh, damning evidence that the fiance knew In a circumstantial case, something like that would be more important than, you know, when you don't have much to go on. I think these those things become more very, and more important to the prosecution. But we'll be talking a lot more about this Absolutely. case. We'll be following it every week, and I do hope that we're going to have a reporter who's been covering this case in Boston as it's been unfolding. Uh, we'll call into the show and give us the latest updates as well. All right, next on the docket, Bruce Jenner may actually be liable for the fatal car crash on PCH. We talked last week last week about a um, video that was on an MTA bus, and that video is in the possession of the LA Sheriff's Department, Lost Hills Division. Um, however, they're not making any comments on what's on this video. TMZ reports that it shows Jenner puffing on a cigarette, being inattentive, uh, going at a high speed, and then crashing into the Lexus in front of him, and, and that he was actually the sole um, uh responsible party for this accident. But again, this comes from uh, TMZ. We don't know what exactly is on this video, which will ultimately determine whether or not he's at fault for the accident. Now, whether he's going to be charged criminally by the DA's office, you know... uh, my gut says no, because a lot of people are involved in fatal car crashes, and most of those cases don't end up in criminal charges. But he is Bruce Jenner, and the DA's office likes to make examples out of celebrities. So if he does get charged, I think it's because of his celebrity status. I mean, he's got somebody died. Um, he was definitely driving negligently and that he didn't maintain um, a safe distance. Perhaps he, he was even speeding. And yeah, I so think that's they determined he wasn't. He was going 46 miles per hour when he slammed on the brakes and then 30, I think, 8 when he hit her. So that's not speeding. They've, uh, in the analysis that i the distance, seen, though? Well, that's the thing is that that's probably all he's guilty of right. is following too closely. He wasn't texting. He wasn't under the mm-hmm. influence. He wasn't speeding. So those are uh, factors for why I think he probably won't face mm-hmm. criminal prosecution. I think it'll be very hard for um, 12 citizens to convict a man of criminal um, homicide uh, for following too closely, something that most of us do all the time. But but the elements of vehicular manslaughter require the one traffic violation, so the not following closely is sufficient. I mean, if you want to really go about it technically, right? One traffic violation, a death in the accident, and negligence. It doesn't even have to be gross. But I think a, a jury wouldn't Convict. I and I hope it doesn't even go that far. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. If the DA, the DA's office decides to bring charges, it will be for one reason and one reason only, because he was on that show called Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Right. That would be, right. and he was an Olympic athlete. Right, <laughs> but, exactly. you know, he's known for one and not the other now. Right. You know, if he, if there are criminal charges brought against him, I think it would be unfortunate because I think it would just be to make an example out of a famous person. Because do I think he will likely be sued civilly Absolutely. in a personal injury suit? Absolutely. Do I think he should be criminally charged? Absolutely not. The only other thing I was thinking, and this shows what a big Kardashian fan I was, <laughs> and still am, uh, is uh, the fact that he was puffing on a cigarette uh, when this happened. There's actually an episode in the show where um, he gets so upset that Chris Jenner still smokes cigarettes, and then him and uh, Kendall Jenner, they pretend that she's smoking a cigarette to kind of show the bad influence that Chris has on her. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that he was so anti-smoking, so that upset me. Right, <laughs> athlete smoking, too. what a turnoff. 
Plus, he's going through all this like hormonal sex change, which stuff. is why smoking, the DA's office would be insane to bring this in front of a jury right. because this man, who first of all, people already feel bad right. for him because he was married to Chris Jenner. Now they feel bad for him right. because of all the attention that's been brought on him. This is a man who's finally at a late stage in life, in his sixties, is deciding to allegedly transition into a woman, mm-hmm. and under all the stress he's under, the paparazzi chasing him. This mm-hmm. would be a terrible case to bring in front of a jury. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jay-Z has 99 problems and a love child or two. Um, there's a paternity suit against him by Live <laughs> I'm Air. only laughing at the photo because, my God, the lips, the yeah. nose. What? The... No, I don't see the resemblance. Um, there, you're saying you see a resemblance? There is a bit of a resemblance. No. But, but this this is, um, this is stems from, this lawsuit stems from a few years ago where Rymer's mother uh, brings uh, an action in court to compel Jay-Z to take a DNA test and and the lawsuit alleges that Jay-Z lied to get the case thrown out so he doesn't have to submit to a DNA testing. And so keep in mind, though, Rymir, um, first of all, he's a horrible rapper, in my opinion. Oh, I'm not a rap connoisseur. But I didn't think it was bad. I think it would definitely help his career to be able to say, Jay-Z is my father. I mean, that's a huge thing. But Jay-Z has had this situation happen before. Um, he had a child with Chanel Scott, a, a model, and he paid her a million dollars just to keep his name reportedly off the birth certificate. Yeah. Um, I mean, if if that's the way to go, I definitely recommend it with respect to uh, Rymir. I, well, I thought it was really interesting <laughs> how instead of submitting to a paternity, his attorneys did argued that they had had the wrong jurisdiction. That because he was a resident of New York and not New Jersey, that the case which could makes be heard me wonder what the result of that paternity test would be. Because you mm-hmm. know this has happened before. We've talked in the show about uh, people coming forward and saying they're the spawn of a celebrity, Justin. <laughs> Bieber has mm-hmm. faced this before. We talked about this on the show in the past. Should Justin Bieber just take the paternity test or not? It was some crazy fan at a concert who claimed that she was knocked up by Justin Bieber. And on the show, we were kind of like, well, if it's not true, just take the paternity test. Right. But then, again, it's like, so every time that someone comes out of the woodwork you and claims to be the celebrity spawn, you got to go take a test. That gets a little bit ridiculous. Right. And what kind of precedent are you setting? But it's so, you know, I can see both, both sides. If he really isn't his son, then take the paternity test and have it you know have it be over why why claim oh wrong jurisdiction or whatever it is to fight this but at the same time is he going to be tra- you know taking a paternity test every time someone right. claims right. their blue no, ivy's yeah. brother <laughs> i mean there's definitely a resemblance there isn't in the town ta- on the talent come side. on I don't Chelsea. See I do there's so many um if you guys follow i not that i'm an ad for the fat jewish on instagram but i follow fat jewish this is this guy <laughs> who hysterical. posts all these viral yeah. memes and he always is posting things um, where they swap Beyonce's face and Jay-Z's face, or they put croissants instead of um, Jay-Z's lips. Those croissant lips are yeah, exactly those are, the those same. Those are uh, patentable. They're, they definitely are. <laughs> All right. Um, next on the docket, the verdict came down, the American sniper trial yes, late yesterday, actually. The former Marine was convicted of the murders of Chris Kyle, who was the um, author of American Sniper, as well as his friend Chad Littlefield. And, you know, this this trial, for those of you who may not have followed it, hinged on whether, um, whether uh, Ralph, Eddie Ray Ralph, the former Marine, was mentally ill to the point of insanity or not. And, you know, 
know, there was evidence. He, there was definitely something not right with him and that he was mentally ill. But the prosecutors succeeded in showing that despite this mental illness, um, he knew right from wrong. Um, he had confessed several times. He had said, you know, I, I took two souls. I'm going to take another, something along those lines. And he had also um, fled the scene, uh, fl- fled the police, and they found him uh, down down the line. So, um, you know, I think that... Uh, uh, he's appealing his conviction, and I'm curious to see what you girls think about the verdict. Do you think it was expected, or um, did you think he's going to succeed at I think when you said that he fled the scene, to me, if I were a juror, that shows you no right from wrong, because if you don't think what you did was wrong, you wouldn't flee the scene. That's why we have a jury instruction that says fleeing the scene can be used as evidence of consciousness mm-hmm. of guilt, because you know you did something mm-hmm. wrong, so you fled the scene. So um, I, I thought agree. that was important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think um, this was an important case in terms of lately in the last decade or so, we have seen a lot of PTSD cases being used mm-hmm. to say um, not guilty by reason of insanity, or at least that's the defense. Um, so I think people watch this case closely. The The main thing I was thinking is just how tragic this was and the timing of it. I mean, um, Tara Kyle, the widow of Chris mm-hmm. Kyle, she wasn't there when the actual verdict was read. Mm-hmm. And I read an interview with her this week. These last couple weeks have been so hard on her because at the same time that she's promoting mm-hmm. this movie that mm-hmm. is the last legacy of her husband, she's had to um, attend the criminal trial of the man who killed her husband. She had to be flown, um, the Weinstein Brothers Company flew her to Los Angeles to attend the Oscars on Mm -hmm. Sunday, Mm -hmm. and she flew right back to attend the last days of this trial, and she said that she was exhausted. It's and almost schizophrenic. It's, it's like, like two completely different lives. Two completely different yeah. lives. The blur between real, what's reality and what's on, you know, a movie and a fantasy. And I just, you know, I feel bad for her. I think that it was the right verdict because it gives her family closure. It gives the family of Chris Littlefield closure. And mm-hmm. um, I think it was the, the the right result in the end. I wish I had something, you know, colorful to say that disagreed with you both just to liven this this up. But I, I, I there is no controversy here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew what he was doing. Uh, tragic, and uh, I mean, I, I hope that it's some small consolation to the widow that mm-hmm. uh, her husband's murder was convicted. But I do think that um, in future cases where uh, defense attorneys are representing a client who has PTSD, uh, they will look to this trial and see what what the defense did right, what the defense did wrong in terms of trying to translate PTSD into a, a not guilty by reason of insanity. Because mm-hmm. this yeah. isn't the first time we've seen an army veteran murder someone um, because because of you know right. their PTSD. I mean right. I don't think it's ar- it's arguable that that seeing you know war seeing a, a lot of what these people see will mess you up. Mm-hmm. But does it mess you up to where you no longer know what's right or wrong? That's the issue here, and I, and, uh, and I think that's where the line gets crossed. Yes, people get messed up by seeing what they are forced to see and be involved with, but people still know what's, what's right from wrong, I think, mm-hmm. most of the time. All right, and last on the docket, um, 
George Zimmerman gets lucky again. We talked about him at length uh, a few weeks ago um, and how he gets lucky with the ladies with all the domestic violence charges that get dropped left and right. But now the Department of Justice has informed him uh, that it is dropping, it is closing the investigation of a civil rights violation involving the shooting death of Trayvon Martin back in 2012. As most of you remember, uh, George Zimmerman um, was acquitted in the trial of this um, murder in 2013, and then the Department of Justice opened its own investigation, and there was a promise by Attorney General Eric Holder, who's now on his way out of the office, saying, you know what, despite the um, uh, verdict, we are going to do our job, we're going to do an investigation that is really thorough to see whether there is any civil rights violations. And he also went on to say um, that... then it was interesting that they, they said that they're going to interview some additional witnesses, that they think there might be some additional information, and then suddenly it's closed, and they let the Martin family know that there, there's no violation. And what I find interesting is that um, Holder said that irrespective of what the decision is going to be on this investigation, they're going to provide a very detailed analysis of what they're, you know, what happened during the course of this investigation. But where is that information? Um, I don't know if this is sort of like wrap it up because he's leaving the office and you know, he just wants to you know, get this over with, along with the Ferguson investigation that's also ongoing, um, or if they really did a thorough investigation and truly found that there's no civil rights violation. So I'm so not surprised by this. I'm not surprised, mm-hmm. and I think that they did do a thorough investigation, but I think they made up their minds and they had a conclusion a long time ago. I think they right. held on to it, and finally Eric Holder made this promise that this, you know, this was something that was going to happen during his term. He's about to mm-hmm. step down, so they finally had to release it. I think they knew long before and I think they knew during everything that was going on with Ferguson and Garner and they thought this isn't a good time to release this. I'm not surprised and I'm um, disappointed only in that every time a Trayvon Martin, an Eric Garner, a Michael Brown situation happens Mm -hmm. uh, you know the DOJ will come in and say oh well even if um, you know the justice system on the state level you know Mm -hmm. let you guys down we're going to investigate it. Mm -hmm. It could be a civil rights claim. We'll We'll, you know, swoop in and investigate it. They have no teeth. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, they make they say that, you know, it'll be different and the DOJ will investigate it and it could lead to a different outcome. It leads to the exact same outcome. So it's almost like promising people this this hope to, to cling on to. And that's why I said they know about they knew about this conclusion a while ago. I think they mm-hmm. knew that George Zimmerman wasn't going to be prosecuted by the DOJ, but they mm-hmm. sat on it and until they, they could no longer sit on it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so turning it over to Chelsea for tipping the scales. All right, so our tipping the scales story involves a man who uh, was wrongly convicted of a double murder and spent 15 years in prison, and he is now suing Northwestern University for $40 million because he says that the university's Innocence Project framed him essentially so this so basically what happened is this innocence project and i I know that you ladies know a little bit more about this than i do but the innocence project is a national organization with various chapters at schools and different um, places around the country that looks to help exonerate wrongfully convicted murderers and so there was such a case uh and uh they they 
got this guy off for murder who was like days away from execution and got some other guy, this, this guy who's now suing to confess. Um, they, he said he was forced to, to confess because of some phony video that was made up about him. The lawyers and investigator and worst of all, uh, well, I don't know if that's worse than the lawyer doing this, but the 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 head of this uh, innocence project at Northwestern University was a journalism professor. Very very odd. But I know that Mari's got a lot to say about this because this is her alma mater, and she was involved in this mm-hmm. very program and is, knows about this professor. So. When I read the story, I think this professor was in over his head looking for glory, and he wanted the uh, the attention of overturning a conviction, which then led the state of Illinois to ban the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Looked really great for him. Is this a, a, a fair assessment of this guy? Here's the thing. I think that the whole situation is very unfortunate because this was a famed program. Like you said, the Innocence Project has chapters all over. What was unique about Northwestern, which is my alma mater, go Wildcats, <laughs> is that um, this was a program that was for undergraduate journalism students, and it was a fantastic program during its length. Now, I will say the program is still going on underneath a, a new professor, but it's not what it once was. Professor David Protes um, started this program at Northwestern's Undergrad Journalism School uh, at Medill, and it was a great way for journalism students to be exposed to the justice system, to be exposed to investigative reporting. And the idea was he would get letters from... um, hundreds of thousands of convicts from around the country saying um, that they were wrongfully accused. And obviously, you know, in Illinois, because the school is in Illinois, uh, they would center it on... um, on convicts in Illinois, and um, students would spend, even though, you know, you would take the class for a semester, you would work on the case, and that Mm -hmm. case would go on for for years with different students working on this case every semester, Mm -hmm. um, interviewing people, uh, interviewing either old uh, old witnesses, interviewing new witnesses, and it was a fantastic program because, like you said, Anthony Porter, the original person who they got off of um, death row, on the eve of his um, of what was supposed to be his execution, the governor at the time decided to halt executions in Illinois, and then eventually um, executions in Illinois are no longer no longer exist. Mm-hmm. Death row in Illinois no longer exists because, in part, of David Protus's innocence project and program. Uh, I think that his program is now in shambles one because of Al Story Simon he's the man who is now suing Northwestern and also because of another case where they alleged very similar things that um, the professor took it too far that uh, his lead investigators took it too far and um, this I don't agree with that the students took it too far that they were um, so involved with getting someone off of death row that uh, they, you know, blurred the lines. This is the this is the situation that led him to retire in 2011, right? Yes, so basically this is the second time mm-hmm. that this professor has been alleged to have um, blurred the line of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it's an interesting dynamic, though, because the Cook County District Attorney's Office has never liked Professor David Protus, and they've never liked this program. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, when um, the District Attorney's Office came forward and said, there is something wrong with this program, they took it too far. They tried to get a subpoena of students' 
grade reports、mm-hmm. over the years because they were trying to prove that students got a better grade if they could pro- provide evidence that the、um, supposed rod- wrongfully convicted、um, convict was innocent, which is. Utterly false. Right, there, there、right. was no connection that, that between a good、top. grade、yeah. and you know trying to prove this person innocent. Do I think that Professor David Protus and especially his lead investigator took things too far?、Mm-hmm. Um, yes, but do I think that it's a sad day for Northwestern because what was once a great program、mm-hmm. is now、um, in shambles? And do I think that Alstory Simon is suing Northwestern because they have the big pockets as opposed to suing?、Uh, you know, Northwestern's only one part of this of this. Puzzle. The district、right. attorney's office still brought a case against him, and a、right. jury still convicted him.、Right. So I think they're targeting Northwestern because they have the big pockets here.、Right. And I think it's unfortunate. I just want to wrap up with one thing because I want to get your comments on it.、Um, when I first applied to Northwestern, there's something called the Why Northwestern statement. I'm sure you did it for when you guys applied to your undergrad. And it was why I want to go to Northwestern.、Mm-hmm. This very program was the reason why I wanted to go to、mm-hmm. Northwestern. I literally wrote a hypothetical news article that Mari Fagel、um, helps to、uh, exonerate a、uh, wrongfully convicted inmate.、Uh-huh. That was my why Northwestern statement because of this very program.、Mm-hmm. And so it's very unfortunate with what's happened.、Uh-huh. It's it's a great you know the, I think the Innocence Project it was founded by a good friend of mine Barry Sheck in 1992 and I think it does the work of God. It it literally restores people's lives and liberties who've been wrongfully convicted. And it happens all the time. And I think you know we have a pretty okay、um, criminal justice system, but it's not perfect, and there are flaws. And I think this is something that is in place that that at least addresses some of these flaws. And you know I think it would be a real shame to judge the Innocence Project based on what happened at Northwestern. I think a better example of the work that the Innocence Projects do across the nation is perhaps the、um, the recent case, and it was the University of Virginia Law School Innocence Project. I think. That's involved in Adnan Syed's uh, uh, DNA motion, you know, to to bring in DNA evidence. This was the.、Uh, did you guys follow Serial, the podcast? Ah,、oh, fascinating. So Susan Koenig of NPR did the the podcast of twelve episodes of Serial, and she followed this case and handed it over to、um, the Innocence Project, which took an interest in in looking looking into what really happened and whether Adnan Syed was the right、um, person who was convicted. So anyway, I I think that.、Um, It's unfortunate this happened because I think it also doesn't look good for the Innocence Project, and I think people need to understand that this is just a very specific situation involving this professor. The conflict of interest with handing a lawyer to Simon, <laughs> essentially, who is、um, works closely with the investigator, and I, you know, so I think this is just a situation specific thing, and.、Uh, Definitely not representative of the. I wonder if the problem here is that the Innocence Project at Northwestern was headed up by the journalism department, and if it would have been. They、different. also have one at the law school, but I think it's I think it's fantastic that journalism students get to take a part、mm-hmm. in it because you know these undergrads, a lot of people have decided to go to law school because they took part in this program in their undergraduate experience.、Just、so I think it is unfortunate. <laughs>、uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I one of the points that I read is that there are different legal standards and journalism standards and. And, um, I don't. I don't know if the ethics are one and the same. I've not studied journalism, but、uh, there's a there's a, a standard when you're collecting evidence from a legal. Uh, perspective that you may not need to follow when you're a journalist, and、mm-hmm. so when the two sort of worlds collide, I think it can get、uh, a little bit hairy. And I'm I, I'm not I'm not really clear that it's a good idea for.、Uh, I think journalists should be able to to report on what's going on, but I but the 
but that their investigation can get so involved so as to present um, new evidence. I mean, the, this this confection, you know, was was for, coerced out of him because this these students claimed. Or no, they created a video of somebody saying that they saw. I mean, it was just an elaborate. Um, I think. I think uh, to get a confession from uh, yeah. him, and uh, I, maybe lawyers would do that. But lawyers are—they're more confined. And yes, I yeah. think that the professor and that his lead, lead investigator mm-hmm. that he worked with took, took things too far. Yes, the students weren't the ones who created this scheme. The students. Basically, what they do is they they put on their journalist cap and they mm-hmm. go out and they interview people mm-hmm. who were there at that time. And then they hand over the results of those interviews to the district attorney's office, who then decides what to do next. And so I think that that, that is all completely appropriate. I think it's a wonderful learning experience. I do think that... Yes, in this particular situation, the professor and the lead investigator took things too far, but that doesn't mean that these students shouldn't have the opportunity to keep learning and to keep having this um, great experience, which is why I think it's good that um, the class is still going on at Northwestern, though I don't know how much longer now that they're hit with another $40 million suit. I think that's it for tipping the scales. Thanks, guys. Uh, yes, but please do weigh in online. Um, tweet us at Mari Fagel. At Azari Law. At Chelsea Galicia. And let us know, do you think that these wrongful uh, conviction programs, these innocence projects, do more harm than good? And please weigh in on the rest of the stories we discussed today. The Mexican Mafia, Aaron Hernandez, Bruce Jenner, Jay-Z and his love child, George Zimmerman. We do want to hear your input, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we will be here same time, same place next week. Thank you. See you. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.